It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It's Wednesday, January 26th, 2022. Welcome to the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson, your host. Glad to have you here every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast is free every day. It's ladies' night on the Guy Benson Show. Here's the lineup. Shannon Bream joining us shortly on some breaking news. Ambassador Nikki Haley upcoming on Russia and Ukraine. Dr. Nicole Sapphire on COVID and restrictions. And Martha McCallum on crime. That's the lineup today, and I look forward to all four of those interviews. Fox News alert as we begin the show. Let's bring you statistics as we always do. Case count cumulatively in the United States. This is COVID, of course, 72.2 million. Multiply that number by maybe double, maybe more to get closer to the true number of cases. The death toll, people dying with or of COVID in the United States over these nearly two years, 870,837. The Dow is down at this hour, really took a nosedive in the last few minutes, currently down 272 points to 34,025. And with that, some breaking news and a Fox News alert. This broke right near the top of the hour at noon Eastern. I was on outnumbered today. On Fox News Channel, I was hashtag one lucky guy on the virtual couch. We had a packed lineup. We had a lot of interesting stories on the rundown. It all went out the window when NBC News reported that Justice Stephen Breyer is going to resign, retire from the Supreme Court at the end of this term, creating the first Supreme Court vacancy of the Biden presidency. Now, I have... A number of thoughts on this, and we will get to Shannon Bream, the best guest I can think of on this coming up in the next segment. But let me break this down for you, because I added a few of these thoughts on the air on Fox News Channel earlier during Outnumbered. I had a few tweets along these lines as well. And let me just say this before I get into the analysis. What I'm about to share with you is my analysis of what I think will happen. Right. I'm not going to give you. What I wish were happening or my preferences, maybe that's interesting to you. Maybe it's not. Perhaps that's a conversation for another day. For now, I want to tell you, based on my knowledge and based on my analytical skills, what I believe is the likeliest scenario that's going to play out. So when a news item like this breaks, the sirens start to go off, the klaxons, all of it. Here we go. It's Thunderdome. In Washington, D.C., buckle up. That's especially true in recent years, although it started kind of with uh, Robert Bork and Ted Kennedy and that fight back in the 80s. And sometimes, yes, these fights get very ugly. They tend to get ugliest 
when there is a Republican president appointing a conservative judge. The left goes all out. It's hard to think of that phenomenon without immediately remembering what they tried to do to now Justice Brett Kavanaugh and that disgraceful episode in our politics. Failed. He got on the court and I think it ended up backfiring against the Democrats. But that's sort of the backdrop here. And because of that, people say, oh, all right, 50-50 Senate. The justice is retiring. There's going to be a vacancy on the Supreme Court. There's only nine seats on the court. This is going to be absolutely epic and huge. Get ready for a brawl. And my very cold take, opposite of the hot take here, is I don't think this is necessarily going to be a terribly dramatic process. One thing that came to mind as soon as this news came to my attention was the promise that Joe Biden made as a candidate that if he had the opportunity to appoint a Supreme Court justice, he would nominate a black woman. Now, let's just set off to the side whether that's a good promise to make, right? Not even thinking about the full universe of qualified nominees that a president could put forward, immediately limiting yourself in the future based solely on immutable characteristics of sex and race. Is that a healthy thing? I don't think that it is, but that's what he promised on the campaign trail. So I am willing to bet most of my money that he will, in fact, nominate a black woman for this position. For a couple of reasons, it's a campaign promise. The left-wing base is identity-obsessed. The left-wing base is also very upset with Joe Biden because they've been racking up some L's, right? Build Back Better didn't go through. So-called voting rights was blocked. The filibuster push, thank goodness, failed, right, to, to change the rules of the Senate. So you have this base of the Democratic Party that has been smoldering with anger about results, about their priorities. Here is a very easy opportunity for President Biden to come in, keep a promise, check some identity boxes that will make the base happy, and to get, I think, what will be a somewhat easy, relatively drama-free win. So that's point number one. I've heard, relatedly, some people buzzing, could it be Kamala Harris? Could he take her from the vice presidency and put her on the court to get her out of there because she's unpopular? That kills two birds with one stone where she's now on the court and they can have someone less toxic. Listen, I understand the parlor games at play and why that's sort of a fun Machiavellian thing to think about. I am willing to bet again that that is absolutely not going to happen for myriad reasons, one of which is that Kamala Harris is one of the black women that Biden could conceivably name who would create a giant, messy, risky fight, needlessly messy, needlessly risky for the president. Another reason is she's not qualified. She failed the bar. She failed the bar on her first try, right? You want the very best and brightest legal thinkers on the court. It would be a stretch to say that Kamala Harris comes close to fitting that bill. It's just not going to happen. In my opinion, I think you can safely put that into the far-fetched category. 
there are a few names being thrown around that I think are far more likely, and perhaps first and foremost is a woman named Katanji Brown-Jackson, who's on the D.C. Circuit Court. She was recently confirmed to that court. She got some Republican votes in that confirmation process, and she checks all the boxes. And she's relatively young. She's in her early 50s. To me, again, if I were a betting man, and I'm really not, I would probably put a good amount of money on a Brown-Jackson nomination. I also understand, Emily Campagno made this point on Outnumbered, that she clerked for Justice Breyer. So there's some shades there of the Kennedy-Kavanaugh situation as well. So in my mind, she's the leader in the clubhouse. There's a few other names. I believe one of the justices on the California Supreme Court has been uh, discussed already. We'll know soon enough. But Katanji Brown-Jackson is a name at least that's going to be seriously in the mix for some hardcore vetting from Team Biden. There's some reporting now from Shannon Bream that Justice Breyer is angry. That he had told Biden last week that he was going to move in this direction, that he was planning to announce his retirement, was not planning to do it today. And he's upset that this was done for him. I don't think that changes much in terms of the process moving forward, but that's interesting. We'll ask Shannon about that coming up. Here's the other thing that I want to say. Why do I say it might be relatively drama free? Especially in light of our recent politics. Are we past the point where these things could go somewhat smoothly? I'm not sure. This would be a progressive justice replacing another progressive justice. Breyer, by all accounts, very smart guy, affable guy. He was a reliable liberal vote almost all the time. So you'll get one lefty replacing another lefty. The balance of the court, six to three, doesn't change, right? If, God forbid, this were a conservative justice stepping aside or passing away or something, I think the mood would be very different. The vibes would be very different. But this is just swapping out one for one on the left side of the court. So that lowers the stakes right away. All Supreme Court battles are high stakes to a certain extent, very high profile. But as far as these things go, it's pretty low stakes, actually. Here's the other thing. Everyone keeps talking about, oh, it's a 50-50 Senate. It's so close. True. It's like, can Vice President Harris come in and break the tie? It would be 51-50. Maybe. My guess is if Biden plays this relatively safe and relatively smart and doesn't massively screw this up, he will put forward someone who is going to get more than 50 votes. Why do I say that? Well, the woman that I just mentioned, she got, I believe, 53 votes for a lower court. She got three Republicans who supported that nomination. Susan Collins from Maine, she has supported every single Supreme Court judicial nominee Voted on the floor every time she's voted yes, with the exception of Amy Coney Barrett for political reasons, electoral reasons. That was an exception. But every Democratic nominee from a Democratic president, Republican Senator Susan Collins has supported. And based on her tradition, based on her reasoning, based on her principles on this issue, I would be shocked unless it's a totally radical polarizing person. I'd be shocked if Collins were a no. I think she'd probably be a yes. I think someone like Lisa Murkowski might be a yes. There might be some other Republicans 
who feel like the president has a right to put forward his people. And if they're qualified, then we shouldn't stand in the way. I would actually not put the over under at 50 50 plus one on this. I would put the over under at 52 48 and I might take the over from where I'm sitting right now. There are some moderate Republicans who would like to burnish their moderate credentials. There are some Democrats, I can think of Joe Manchin and especially Kirsten Cinema, who've been doing nothing but pissing off the base, really infuriating their own party. This is a chance for them, and again, in a high-profile way, relatively low stakes to come in and be good team tribal party members. Manchin has voted for all the Biden judges. Manchin generally votes for Supreme Court justices. He voted, if I recall correctly, for Gorsuch and Kavanaugh. He and Cinema, I'm willing to bet, are going to support this nominee and make a bit of a show out of doing it to try to win back some of that favor. It works for them. More conservative senators will also fight the nomination. They'll ask tough questions. They'll put out their press releases and so on and so forth to rile up the base, remind people of the stakes of elections in the Senate and the presidency. There's also a place for that. We have a midterm election coming up. So I just look at the various dynamics here, and I think if Biden doesn't botch this horribly or there's not some big unforeseen bombshell that falls into this situation, I think you will get a qualified African-American female progressive nominee who will be announced, who will get confirmed, and that confirmation vote will be close but not that close and a little bit bipartisan, and it won't be anywhere near the crazy levels of rancor that we've seen more recently. That's just my prediction based on my analysis of the situation, the facts on the ground, the incentives at play for various people. I'll be curious to see Mitch McConnell's statement on this. My guess will be cautious. I think he'll give permission to some of his members to maybe support the nominee, others to rail against the nomination. Again, high profile, low-ish stakes as far as these things go. For all of those reasons, that's the way I see this playing out. I could be wrong. There could be a curveball coming. But from where I sit, based on everything I know, having been a student of these fights now for years, that is my analysis. And maybe we can revisit it at some point and see if I nailed it Or maybe not so much. Time will tell. Shannon Bream up next on The Guy Benson Show. Guy Benson will be right back. The Fox News Rundown. A contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. I'm Guy Benson. We're back on The Guy Benson Show. Let's get right to Shannon Bream, chief legal correspondent at Fox News, anchor of Fox News at night, weeknights at midnight, FNC. And Shannon, great to have you here. Thank you so much. Great to be with you. All right. So you are reporting from multiple sources that Justice Breyer is not a happy camper about the way his decision to retire has apparently leaked ahead of time. Tell us more. So I've got a little bit more clarity on that. Um, I was given the word upset, and I'm told that that is a bit much, um, that there, listen, he'd fully made this decision. It was going to happen very, very soon, but not today. And that it might be better, I'm told, to describe him as surprised um, that this played out today. It was certainly not what he was planning and caught him off guard. Um, but he fully made the decision, um, never felt pressured by this, had had worked through it. Listen, he's 83 
um, has a long legacy on the court and felt like the timing was right for him to go. But I'm told he was not planning to announce that today. You gave us some color on Outnumbered earlier when I was co-hosting about your experiences with the justice. Tell us a little bit about that. Listen, he was always a very fun guy, funny guy. I mean, he would have these lunches that with us near the end of the term, some of the folks in the press corps, and we go to this little Chinese restaurant on Capitol Hill, always sat in this little room upstairs, and he couldn't have been more kind of jovial and just he loved conversation and telling stories. Um, he didn't seem like somebody who the stress of the job got to him because it's got to be super stressful at times. I've never seen him sort of lash out or lose his temper um, during arguments or anything like that. He just seems like sort of an eternal optimist. Um, I, I talked about in the court, you know, he's kind of like your worst nightmare law school professor who starts with a hypothetical. But what if this happened and that happened? And, that, and I'm, you know, like, don't go with him. Don't go down this road with him. You don't know where this is going to end up. But he really was like that. I, I'm told in his deliberations, too, that he really wanted to push ideas to their limits and really think about the extent of what the court was doing, how it could be used in the future. And he wanted to game out all those possibilities. And we saw that many times in the court. Shannon, briefly, my analysis is I think this might end up being relatively low octane in terms of a fight here. Of course, it'll be a fight. But the Democrats have the votes. They might get some Republicans if it's a a non-radical nominee uh, who get on board And it's also kind of low-ish stakes because it would be one progressive for another. Does that sound in the ballpark of right to you? It does. I'm hoping that, you know, we have this very heated moment that we're at uh, in Washington and in this country. But as Supreme Court confirmations go, I think you're spot on. I think because you would be replacing a Democrat nominee with another Democrat nominee on the bench, um, it, it wouldn't be a seismic shift, say, replacing Justice Ginsburg with Justice Coney Barrett. Um, so I think that with the, the Democrats do have the votes. They all stick together. And I do think you'll get a few Republicans like the Lindsey Grahams and those who say, we have to give deference to a president. If the person's qualified, then we owe them the nomination that they've chosen. Kentanji Brown-Jackson, does that sound like a name at the top of your list? Yes, definitely. Um, she sits on the D.C. Circuit, which we always refer to as sort of AAA before you go to the big leaves of the Supreme Court. Many of the justices have come through that specific court. Right. And She's she fits the profile, here, the exact was- profile of what Biden promised on the campaign trail. So that was my initial guess. Of course, it's early days, early hours here after we discovered what Justice Breyer has decided. Shannon Bream, so appreciated. Thank you for that insight on this breaking news day on The Guy Benson Show. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. It's the Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com, our online home. Podcast is free, on demand, every day. With us now is the Honorable Nikki Haley, former governor of the great state of South Carolina, also former U.S. ambassador to the United Nations. She is founder of Stand for America PAC. And Ambassador Haley, great to have you here again. Thanks so much, Guy. Great to be with you. Before we get to foreign policy and the situation brewing 
in Ukraine. I just want to get your initial reaction, politically speaking, to the announcement today, I guess the leak today, that Justice Breyer is going to retire from the Supreme Court, setting up a confirmation fight ahead. What would be your thoughts and maybe your advice to Senate Republicans in an evenly divided Senate about how to approach what's coming next? Well, I think you first have to acknowledge the fact that how disrespectful to let that leak um, and not let Justice Breyer say it on his own terms. I mean, I think that shows how political the Biden White House has been, um, and it's just par for the course. The second thing is I wish President Biden could do something without interjecting race and gender as a litmus test. I mean, you immediately, you know, automatically put down this next person you're going to you're going to mention by labeling them first. I never did that when I picked Tim Scott as senator for South Carolina. You pick someone and you do it based on the quality of that person, the merit of that person. You don't go and say, this is the label I'm going to have and this is the pool I'm going to choose from. So when you nominate, you've nominated from the whole pool. And if that person happens to be an African-American woman, great, but you didn't just define her as that. And so I just continue to be shocked at how Biden everything is a litmus test based on race and gender. And then he wonders why we're so divided. You know, my advice for Republicans going into this is, you know, these are very, very important nominations. Let's see who he puts up and let's make sure that we do everything we can to make sure we get the most qualified person in for the job. Meanwhile, I want you to put your ambassador hat on here and break down for us how you view the situation on the border of Ukraine. You dealt with the Russians at the U.N. You dealt with some of our NATO allies on a regular basis at the U.N. It's not always easy to herd those cats. What do you think Putin is planning on here and how soon? I think it's horribly embarrassing what has happened. I mean, I I have to say it was absolutely cringeworthy listening to Biden's press conference because literally – you know, you never show your cards, especially when you don't have any. And that's literally what he did, you know, to to refer to whether there's a minor incursion or not. I, I know, having dealt with the Ukrainians and everybody else, they had to have been mortified because it was basically giving a green light to let Russia know, look, you can do a little bit, but you can't do a lot. Well, that's like saying you can go and you can attack Florida, just don't attack the rest of the country regardless of what you do, it's bad and you have to treat it that way. And he needed to treat it with the urgency and the seriousness that it is. Um, We're suffering with the fact that with the fall of Afghanistan, I mean, you've got anywhere from Putin, Xi, um, Kim Jong-un in North Korea, you know, to the Ayatollahs in Iran, they all get what an amazing opportunity this is. They know that they've never had a weak president like this before. They know they probably never will have another one again. And so they are trying to get everything they can. Putin is trying to leverage. I don't think his intent is to go to war. Um, it would not be popular really? um, for him in, in Russia. That's Russians don't want to see that happen. He knows it would be costly in terms of life and money. He knows Russians don't want to see that happen. And Putin's had um, some some popularity problems within Russia. So what he's trying to do is bring home for Russia a win saying he kept Ukraine out of NATO or he limited what NATO can do. What we have to do is let him know 
you don't play these games. So look at, at what we know about Russia. We know those facts about Putin. Um, we also know that we don't want him dictating who is or is not in NATO. Mm-hmm. We should be strengthening NATO's spine by getting everybody on one page, making sure we're all talking with one voice. The way to really kind of weaken Russia and strengthen Ukraine is we should be sending anti-tank missiles, anti-aircraft, anti-ship missiles. That's the thing that Putin will cower to if we do that. We should look at the sanctions and not wait for Putin to attack you. Do it before to let him know that you don't cause this kind of chaos. And that sanctions on the one you know, industry that they have is energy. So going after their energy, going after Putin personally, or going after financial transactions would really kind of chill him to let him know that we're serious. And then I think you have to look at a timeline is, you know, what would Putin's calculus be? I've dealt with the Russians. They very much value the Olympics. They don't want to not be in it because they want to, you know, they know that their medal count matters. So I don't think you're going to see anything happen during the Olympics. I think if there's a window that something's going to happen, it's going to be February 20th, which is the last day of the Olympics, to March 1st, which is the day when Putin has to give his State of the Union address. So we should all be strengthening up so that he, by February 20th, realizes how bad it would look if he even attempted to move forward. I mean, there's a lot at play, but I can tell you going and shopping and going to get ice cream is not what Biden needs to be doing right now. He needs to be talking with our international partners and coming up with a game plan. I want to come back to our international partners here in a second. But if I heard you correctly, you think that ultimately Putin doesn't want to invade you think he will, though, if, if he feels like he doesn't want to lose face and he doesn't believe that the West will be united in response? He will if he can get something out of it. So that's the importance of NATO being solidified. That's the importance of Biden really showing that strong, unified momentum of every country together. This should not be a Russia-U.S. War, which is what Putin wants to make it, this very much needs to strengthen the spine of NATO and everyone stand together saying you're not going to dictate to us who can or cannot be in our alliance. It's another major thing he needs to be doing is Biden needs to be calling out Germany and telling them that they're, you know, that they have conflicts in this and they can't be calling the shots because this is exactly why President Trump. Um, from his administration, and I spoke very loudly at the U.N., that it was a total mistake for the Nord Stream 2 pipeline to go forward because it would weaken our European allies, it would totally make Germany dependent, and it would cause all of us harm. This is proof of that. This is absolute proof of that. And if Biden could get NATO to say, we're going to stand down on Nord Stream 2 just for this reason, you would see Putin freeze. What can be done to do that because, I mean, the Germans are being difficult and recalcitrant and Biden admitted in that press conference last week that you referenced, he admitted that NATO is not on the same page and people aren't uh, currently aligned with a united front about what they would do in response to various uh, options and, you know, the incursion, regardless of size, there's, there are vibes, ripples of disunity right now within the West, within NATO, What can be done? Because, you know, you can just throw up your hands and say, oh, gosh, you know, there go the Germans again. There's this new government they have. What are we going to do? But also we're the United States of America. And there are probably, you know, certain levers of 
of leverage that we can use to maybe turn the screws a little bit on the German government, make them make a choice, make them choose between the West and Putin. I mean, there's a, obviously a balancing act. You don't want to play total hardball with your own allies when you've got this huge threat from Russia. But it seems like maybe there could be more pressure brought to bear on some of the stragglers. No, you absolutely absolutely play hardball with your allies. You know, when you when you have fights in the family, you keep it behind closed doors, but you have fights in the family. And look, there was not unity when it came to us getting out of the Iran deal. There wasn't unity mm-hmm. when I had to fight to get um, the harshest sanctions on North Korea, you know, in history. There wasn't unity when we were going and taking on China. We created that unity and we did it by, there were many times where I closed the door and talked to my European allies and said, this is what has to be done. This is why we have to do it. And when we walk out that door, there needs to be a united front. That is what you do. That is the whole reason we fought back on Nord Stream 2. And we did it knowing that this was going to happen. This is when Biden should go into the room and say, well, I mean, the the hard part is Biden sold us out on Nord Stream 2. Trump had made sure we didn't allow that to happen. Biden gave it a free pass. So first, he has to admit the mistake that that was wrong. Secondly, he's got to get Germany to look out for the region and not just themselves. This is what leadership is. It's getting a disunified group together for the greater good. It can be done. We've done it multiple times before, but it takes energy, it takes hard work, and it takes a 100% commitment. These countries would much rather follow the United States than Russia or China any day of the week. But when they don't see the U.S. lead, they all cower and go into their separate groups. And that's what's happening right now. You know, Madam Ambassador, as you're making those points, I can't help but think back since we're talking about this pipeline. Just, what, two weeks ago at this point, the administration sent officials up to Capitol Hill to whip Democrats against a sanctions bill from Senator Cruz to sanction Putin and this pipeline. And I guess the understanding was, look, we don't want to rankle the Germans too much. Uh, We don't want to necessarily step on our diplomatic efforts prematurely. We might get to that eventually. But if you want to send a signal about the the seriousness of purpose of the United States government across party lines, I wonder if that would have been a better strategic decision decision rather to let the Senate move forward on a bipartisan basis because they had majority support. Democrats hilariously filibustered it actually while they were in the middle of trying to kill the filibuster and call it racist. They briefly uh, came back into the non-racist camp and used it to kill it which is what the Biden team wanted them to do. It seems like that, especially now looking back, looks like even more of a mistake. It absolutely was a mistake. And, you know, you should be asking every Democrat, look at what situation you put us in, because don't complain about Ukraine without realizing that you missed a total opportunity to sanction that Nord Stream 2, which would have really flat-footed Putin. I mean, these are all the things that we've got to 
to get it together. There's so much, Guy, when you look at the situation. I mean, it, it, there's no surprise that you've got 30 planes flying over Taiwan right now. There's no surprise that you're seeing the Ayatollahs start to look for areas where they can have suicide bombers and they're starting to have their terrorist attacks. There's no surprise that North Korea is starting to test missiles again. They all sense weakness. And we've got to get it together. I mean, there's a serious problem when Biden wants to say COVID's the number one priority. Fine. Then why is it that when we pick up an N95 mask, it's made in China? Why is it that these tests that he's passing out to everyone, they're made in China? Why is it that the Americans still rely on over 10% of our energy from Russia? We've got to wake up and understand you have to wrangle some feathers. I sat across from the German ambassador and read him the riot act and told him in front of other Europeans, tell me why this is good for our alliance. And he couldn't answer the question. We have to start doing the things that are difficult to do for the good of our country and for the good of the world. It's just not happening. You mentioned it's time. not because there aren't solutions. It's because people are getting lazy. And the laziness is going to destroy America if we don't start doing something about it. Well, and really hurt the West and will allow powers, emerging powers that are diametrically diametrically opposed to our values to gain strength and influence around the world, which is not good news. And since you mentioned Taiwan, I guess we can maybe leave it here. We don't want to get too far out into the future or catastrophize too much. But if it feels like Putin is able to get away with something again in Ukraine, because let's remember, he's already done it, right? This would be round two in Ukraine should it play out this way. You know that Beijing is watching the world reaction extremely closely, and if they sense like they can get away with something similar, I mean, Taiwan will fall, right? I mean, there there are consequences beyond the immediate circumstance when it comes to other tyrants and other bully regimes elsewhere making decisions and calculating what they might be able to get away with. It's really important that everybody look at the end of the Olympics. It's the reason that we didn't want and and the reason I pushed so hard for a boycott of the Beijing Olympics is because if they get a pass and we get past these Olympics and we still look weak, they're going to do whatever they want because they can. And that's the dangerous part of the next three years is honestly, for the good of our country, if, if, if Biden loved our country, he would step down and take Kamala with him because the foreign policy situation is beyond dangerous at this point. And, you know, it, it, when you don't have a strong America, you don't have a safe world. And that's what's getting ready to happen. And, and, you know, my only hope and prayer is that they get it together and realize this isn't about America. This isn't about, you know, NATO. This is about all of us. This is about safety. This Wait, is did, about strength. And this is about freedom winning. Ambassador and, Haley, did, did you just call on the president and vice president to resign? I mean, look at the situation. We are in a dangerous situation. He destroyed Afghanistan. He's put us in the situation with Russia. He has no plan for Taiwan. And you're sending our our athletes over to Beijing for the Olympics. And you've said nothing about how you're going to protect them when they're over there. They've literally been threatened and told if they say anything against the government, they will be punished. Where is the protection for Americans? I mean, literally, he has failed on every level. And then you look domestically. 
You look at the fact that crime is hitting our streets. You look at the fact that our kids, we've got an entire COVID generation that we're going to be lucky if they graduate from high school at this point, if we keep these schools closed and keep taking on these teachers unions. You've got a border where you allowed 200,000 illegal immigrants to cross last month alone. Yep. All of the this has been a catastrophe on every level. That's not me speaking politically. That's me speaking as a as a loving um, person of America whose parents came here because they saw the greatness of it. The wife of a combat veteran who fought in Afghanistan and sacrificed. Yeah. And I mean, there's no there's no doubt. I mean, the number of crises and challenges have been piling up under this administration and so many broken promises already. We're up on a hard break, Madam Ambassador, which is why I had to cut in. We always appreciate your time. That's Nikki Haley, former South Carolina governor, former U.S. ambassador to the U.N. Stand for America PAC is her organization. Thank you so much, Madam Ambassador. Hope to talk to you again soon. Thanks so much, Guy. God bless. We'll be right back. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Back on the Guy Benson Show. I got a kick out of this from our Vice President of the United States, Kamala Harris. He was talking about the priorities of protecting people. And let's just listen to what she had to say in Cut 15. We are focused on the most vulnerable. And based on my experience, the most vulnerable are women and girls, racial and ethnic minorities, LGBTQI plus people, indigenous people, people with disabilities, migrants, and children in the foster care system. When we identify who is most vulnerable, we can tailor our tactics and improve our strategy. So she says we have to uh, protect the most vulnerable. And then she went on to list, as Noah Rothman points out, roughly 70% of the American people. Our most vulnerable are the vast majority of our people. And I, I made the cut, by the way, because I'm LGBT. Thank goodness. Thanks for focusing on me, Madam Vice President. I feel so much better. Ay, ay, ay. Another hour coming up. city in the world unconventional talk from a fresh unconventional conservative kai benson show a brand new hour here on the guy benson show our middle hour out of three every weekday three to six p.m eastern GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is always free every single day. No charge to you on demand as soon as the broadcast ends. GuyBensonShow.com. Fox News alert. The Dow closes down 130 points today, ending the day at 34,166. Well, it's a busy news day. Everything happening with Russia and Ukraine. We had Ambassador Nikki Haley on the show last hour. She had made some news there, I think. We also talked about the breaking news of the forthcoming Supreme Court retirement and a vacancy because Justice Breyer is going to be stepping down. We will have more on that later as well. But if you missed our first hour, we covered that pretty heavily. You can go back and get that on the free podcast. Ambassador Haley mentioned the Olympics in China. And I want to focus a bit more on that. 
I wrote about this today at townhall.com, and I continue to be, and there's nothing to be done about it, right? The Olympic Games are moving forward. Beijing has won. Right? They've pulled off this global PR coup, arguably at a point in time where they deserve it less than ever for all the reasons that we talk about frequently on this program. But one of the other elements of this that makes it even more totally baffling to me that the IOC would award the games to China was revealed in an Axios report. This is setting aside the human rights abuses. This is setting aside the genocide. This is setting aside the crushing of democracy in Hong Kong and the jailing of journalists and the violation of international law. This is setting aside the attacks on Indian troops, the saber-rattling against Taiwan, the aggressiveness in the South China Sea. This is setting aside all the other forms of persecution that they engage in against Christians and other minorities. This is setting aside the massive cover-up and lies involving the origins of a virus— that has killed millions of people. I mean, the list goes on and on with the Chinese Communist Party, the concentration camps, right? The ethnic cleansing, the re-education prisons, basically, for Muslims, slave labor. I mean, on and on and on it goes, forced abortions. It's just unconscionable. And on top of all of that, there's this. Byron York highlighted it. An Axios newsletter notes that Beijing and these Olympics will be the first to rely entirely on artificial snow. And the report links to the Olympic site evaluation report, which conceded when the decision was made that Beijing was likely to have, quote, minimal annual snowfall. Think about that. That actually really stopped me in my tracks for a second. For all the ethical and geopolitical and moral reasons not to allow the Chinese Communist Party to again have this prestigious world stage. In addition to that, beyond that, there's just the practical matter that there's minimal annual snowfall for a Winter Olympics site where so many of the events are built around snow. So they're bringing in fake snow, artificial snow, to allow the games to continue. And I know that that's usually a backup plan, or they use artificial snow to supplement if there's low snowfall for whatever reason. But they knew going in, in a you know, when you add all the stuff that I just mentioned, the rap sheet of China, and then you add in the fact that Snow was maybe not likely to be in the forecast, certainly not large amounts of it. And ultimately, it looks like it's going to be an Olympics the first time ever that the Winter Olympics will rely entirely on artificial snow. It's like, why did they go this direction at all? I know there are allegations out there about corruption. Uh, There have been pieces written about how the IOC has this strange affinity for various reasons to authoritarian regimes. But, I mean, the decision that was made flies in the face of really every reasonable consideration. And yet here we are, days away from the Beijing Olympics. 
or the athletes are being told, don't bring your personal devices, they're going to get hacked, you're going to be spied on, where the Chinese government is saying you better not break any of the rules on political protests or statements or else there will be punishments. Hell of a job, IOC. What a choice you've made. Meanwhile, we've had this conversation, this debate about what the Biden administration has chosen to do and not do for these games. They did not call for an American boycott of the Olympics or rally the world for a Western boycott. They didn't go that direction. There's a case to be made to do that. There's a case to be made against it. They decided not to go there. They did announce a diplomatic boycott, which is kind of just a slap on the wrist. It's symbolic. It doesn't really have much bite. There was a middle ground that I saw some people talking about, and we've mentioned it here, where it'd be the diplomatic boycott plus some form of sponsor, corporate sponsor boycott, where there would be international prestige demerits and also some financial demerits. Problem is the corporate sponsors don't want to do that. Corporate sponsors want to make money in China. And as we are seeing over and over again from American airlines, like not just American airlines, but other airlines based in America to Western hotel chains to, of course, Nike and Apple and Google and the NBA, Kodak, like we've, we've gone through a whole list of these companies. They are more interested in making money in China and having access to that market than standing up for any values that they like to talk about when it can make them money here at home, but apparently they don't really believe in. So there's a story in Mother Jones, which is a left-wing publication, but I think this is important. I'm glad that they wrote the story and did this research and did this reporting. And the report is that there are these uh, human rights activists who have been trying to get in touch with major corporate sponsors, Western corporate sponsors of the Olympic Games, to talk to them. These are advocacy groups for the Uyghurs, who are the targets of the Chinese genocide, Tibetans, Hong Kongers, and other targets of Beijing's authoritarian crackdown. They are fighting... Uh, this is according to Mother Jones, to have a voice heard ahead of the Olympics. But according to these organizers and these activists, as they've set out to get meetings with the IOC, with the Olympics corporate sponsors, their groups, quote, have been met with radio silence from basically every sponsor. One of these activists said, They've gotten, quote, no response whatsoever from American brands like Coca-Cola, Airbnb, Procter & Gamble. Quote, they've entirely ghosted us. The story also mentions that there was uh, a hearing on Capitol Hill a while back. This came up. You had some of these uh, sponsors who were going to be present. And there were questions about China and their abuses and the Uyghurs and so on and so forth. And at this hearing, and some of these companies put out little statements or sent an email off to the activists saying, oh, of course we care about human rights, but you know that's the end of that. Although they're not even getting that. They're getting totally ghosted, as you just heard. But before Congress, 
At the hearing, quote, every company reiterated its commitments to human rights. They all even cited the same United Nations guiding principles on business and human rights. But only one company, Intel, even mentioned the Chinese government's repression of Uyghur Muslims in its prepared statement. So they are skirting around this. The idea that you would get the economic might and the economic leverage of the West and some of these corporations to maybe join up and make a real statement, it's not going to happen when you have governments around the world scared of China, indebted to China, beholden to China, reliant on China, which is a strategy that the CCP has employed already to make sure that it would be extremely painful for anyone to cross them. This has been the goal. It's going well for them. Their plan is working. And then the argument for opening up China and for American companies to go operate in China, understanding that a bunch of their IP is going to get stolen and their ideas are going to get knocked off and given to Chinese competitors, they just decide it's still worth it because there's a lot of money to be made. And part of the argument is, oh, we can go over there and we can start changing their society, their cultural norms. Right? Once they get more of a taste of openness in the West and democracy and capitalism, then they're going to come closer and closer to us. But as I've pointed out before, depressingly, it seems like we got addicted in the West to Chinese money and profits from China and just decided, okay, it's now been reverse engineered where Chairman Xi says jump and our side says how high because you don't want to get blacklisted or blackballed in China, which is how we ended up with humiliating spectacles, for example, after the Chinese broke their treaty and violated the law, international law in Hong Kong, and started squeezing the life out of democracy there, locking up dissidents, shutting down newspapers. In the midst of that, and the whole hullabaloo with the NBA and the one guy from the Houston Rockets who just sided with democracy in Hong Kong and He got called out on the carpet and LeBron James attacked him and lobbied for him to get punished by the league. And all these super woke athletes and coaches who can never shut the hell up about American politics and how horrible things are and civil rights and, you know, equity and all that stuff. Not one peep about any of this stuff because they all were like, "Uh oh, what are we supposed to say? There's a lot of money over there. So there was the example of pro-Hong Kong, pro-democracy demonstrators getting thrown out of American basketball arenas. One happened during the U.S. national anthem because they were holding signs or wearing T-shirts that could be offensive to China. That's what the NBA was doing. It's Oh, we can't have this type of politics. Oh, give me a break. You have the players lining up on their knees during the anthem with Black Lives Matter on the court. The idea that, oh, we can't have any politics, nonsense. You're all politics all the time. It's part of your brand. We're the woke league. You're proud of it. But not on this. Not with a genocide against people of color, because that's different. Well, there were shades of that same exact phenomenon in Australia, at the Australian Open, the tennis tournament, where there were spectators ejected because they were wearing shirts that said, where is Peng Shui, who's the Chinese female tennis star who alleged that she was sexually assaulted by a CCP official. Then she was sort of disappeared and she put out this, you know, hostage statement, basically recanting, not credible. She's been uh, not really 
seen in public except for these choreographed photo ops from the government, from the regime. These tennis fans were saying, where is this tennis player? Right? They're looking out for the well-being of the alleged victim of rape and a player within the sport. But because they had the T-shirt on, where is Peng Shui? That was deemed, oh, no, that's too political. And out they went. Thrown out. Can you imagine corporate sponsors refusing to meet with Black Lives Matter under certain under the similar circumstances? Like radio silence, totally ghosted, totally snubbed? That wouldn't happen. If someone had a Love is Love t-shirt or a Black Lives Matter t-shirt, would they get thrown out of a basketball arena or a tennis match in Australia? I don't think so. People are addicted to Chinese cash. They are scared of what could happen to their business in China. And therefore, a lot of principles are just thrown out the window, and we're seeing it every day. It's a sad thing to watch. It's The Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson, back on The Guy Benson Show. I saw this tweeted out by the RNC, and I have to admit it was a pretty good bit of trolling. Because Jen Psaki, the White House press secretary, a.k.a. Circleback, she was asked about the president's schedule. He had a very light schedule yesterday. And she's asked about this sometimes. They call a lid, you know, early. We're in the middle of some fairly important things happening in the country and in the world Why was the president's schedule so light? Why are they calling early lids? These are questions that they get occasionally. And she has sort of a pat answer where she says, oh, well, we have all these important meetings and the president has, you know, executive responsibilities that aren't necessarily on the schedule, but he's very, very busy. Dawn till dusk is just the busiest, busiest man. And. She was going through trying to explain what the schedule was like yesterday and why the public schedule was so thin. And what the RNC do is they juxtapose that literally side by side, her answer and Biden venturing out into D.C. in very cold weather to go get ice cream, an ice cream cone. And he's there and he's showing off with the ice cream cone. And he's posing for photos. He's licking the ice cream. Look, I also like ice cream. I get that he likes ice cream. I do not begrudge the fact that he enjoys ice cream or that he goes and gets ice cream. I do think it's funny to see his spokesperson talking about how very busy he is with these images juxtaposed side by side. Here's what she was saying. And imagine the president eating ice cream as you listen to Cut 13. The president has nothing on his schedule today aside from the PDB. Can you shed any light on on how he's spending his day? Uh, well, let's see. Um, this morning, I think he had some policy meetings, uh, also a PDB meeting. Um, he, um, later this afternoon, uh, I think is doing some remarks review. There are some days that we spend some time, uh, doing internal meetings and discussions, uh, with policy experts, with policy leaders. Um, and that's, that's what's happening today. He would say he doesn't have nearly enough time of free time on his schedule because it is packed no matter whether people see him or not. (laughs) That's in the meantime, internal monologue for Biden is, "Mm, that's good. Oh, yeah, that's the stuff over at Jenny's ice cream, which is good. Overpriced, but good ice cream. And I'm not the type of person who's going to take my shoe off and bang it on the table. I'm so mad that Biden's out there getting ice cream with what's happening in Russia. I mean, there are also optics. That's part of politics. If there's a potential hot war brewing in Europe, 
and the press secretary is saying he's so busy, he doesn't have any free time at all, and then he's spending his time eating ice cream, that's sort of a slam dunk for the opposition to make that mashup and put it on the internet. And they did, and I found it entertaining. I have to admit that I did. And I also don't believe that this president is rigorously scheduled unlike any leader before him. It does seem like he might take a different sort of pace, which is okay, but not necessarily what the American people expect of their president. In case you're curious, the White House called a lid just after 3 p.m. yesterday. Just as we were going on the air, we were just getting started, he was done. Hope the ice cream was delicious, though. Guy Benson Show resumes next. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Halfway through the week, halfway through today's show, it's the Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com for the free podcast every day. We are joined now by Dr. Nicole Sapphire, board-certified medical doctor, senior Fox News medical contributor, and best-selling author, most recently of Panic Attack, playing politics with science in the fight against COVID-19. Doctor, welcome back to the show. Hi, Guy. Thanks so much for having me on. A lot to get to here, but first, it's my understanding that it is a very big day for you. And not just a big day every year, but an especially big day this year. Happy birthday. Thank you. Big 4-0. Uh, this is 40. How you feeling at 40? I feel great. I mean, this last year was a year of recovery. You know, I had that fall down the stairs, mm-hmm. some injuries. I'm looking forward to this year focusing on my physical and mental health. So I don't know what I'm allowed to say without getting into trouble because it's everyone so sensitive these days. Can I just say, in my opinion, I think you look awesome for 40. Like, I'm hey, shocked you're 40. I appreciate that. Thank you. Well, you know, I do have a 21-year-old son. And, you know, by all standards, I am too young to have a 21-year-old son. But I appreciate it because let me tell you, I'm exhausted. <laughs> now, what's the the aphorism now? Because they keep saying decade X is the new decade Y. So your 30s, the new 20s. Are, like, what are the 40s now? What's your understanding of that? You know what? All I know is they say that uh, when you hit 40, you are, you know, essentially life expectancy is up to 80 these days. So you're at your halfway mark. So looking forward, it's like, what are you going to do with the next half of your life? And, you know, I can tell you, I've been busy for the last 20 years or so. And so the next 20 years, I want to focus a little bit more on having fun. That sounds Fantastic. I endorse this entirely, especially if you can still make time for us on the show here. Selfishly, do you have any major 40th birthday plans, a bash, a trip? Speaking of fun, anything in the works? Well, you know, I just got back from vacation late Sunday night. So we did a little dinner on the beach celebrating my birthday last week. Where'd you go? And we went to a small island off of Antigua. Uh, you know, there's nothing to do there except lay on the beach, and that's all I wanted to do. That's I the played stuff. tennis, which I was happy to do after my several shoulder surgeries this last year. Uh, rode bicycles and laid on the beach and read a couple books. It was amazing. That sounds and, um, perfect. And this weekend, we're supposed to go to my favorite restaurant, Bavo, 
in New York City, but seeing as there's an impending snowstorm, yeah. my husband went out to Williams-Sonoma and bought a pasta maker, so I think we're staying in and making pasta. <laughs> All right, that sounds... And you could always get to the restaurant next time and do the homemade pasta thing this time. It all sounds amazing. Uh, I'm sure my invite is forthcoming. Uh, doctor, let's get to medicine and more serious issues. Let's start here. We're seeing a very angry fight playing out in certain parts of Virginia over masking and schools and parental choice. I know you and I have talked about these issues over and over again over the last year and a half. Are you struck by the extent to which so much of the fight is based not really on science, but people's perhaps outdated or completely mangled understanding of what the science is or what they hope it would be or what they imagine in their heads would be, quote unquote, safe for kids. Because it really feels like that the debate in certain parts of the country is just untethered from medical realities. Guy, let's be very clear here. COVID is not hurting our children. People at this point are hurting our children, and it is remarkably irresponsible at how kids continue to be caught in the middle of these political fights. We have to, as a society, be able to evolve with science. And as the pandemic landscape has changed, we have a large amount of hybrid immunity, natural immunity, vaccine-induced immunity. We have a lesser virulent um, variant that is causing a more milder form of disease. We have treatments. We have other mechanisms at this point that is rendering this virus to be much more mild than it has ever been. So at this point, people need to be more tolerant of transmissibility. We cannot keep focusing on daily case counts. It is okay to have a percent positivity over 10% when you have the severity and death rates markably lower than what they were in the last year or two years. And so unfortunately, people are stuck in this mindset, like we're back in March 2020. Right. And that is not the case. It is not the same pandemic as it was. Yeah, it's just blowing my mind seeing, for example, in Los Angeles, they're going to require all the kids to wear these fitted medical masks, even outside. I'm like, what are we doing here? This is absolutely nuts. And we've talked about this on the program with you in monologues with other guests. There is no good data that shows that masking kids for hours at a time in schools is helpful, that it benefits them, that it stops the spread, particularly of Omicron. There is evidence that there are downsides and harmful effects when it comes to masking. I saw a story out of Florida where school masking and masking in general is not as prevalent, thank goodness. But they interviewed a speech therapist who says that her referrals of children from other doctors and from parents have skyrocketed well over 300 percent during the pandemic. And she absolutely believes part of that is because of widespread masking. If that's what's happening in Florida, doctor, you would imagine there are similar crises, probably worse crises elsewhere in the country where there's this almost religious zealotry attached to the idea of having kids in masks for eight hours every day. There are actual negative implications that a lot of adults seem ignorant of or not willing to grapple with or just not caring, I guess, because they've got their culture war to fight. 
Well, the truth is the burdens of these masks completely outweigh the benefit. And it's not just in Florida or California. I mean, I can tell you my children's school are now requiring them to wear KN95s. And as someone who has to wear an N95 mask all day while I'm at work, there is no reason that my children should do it. The risks associated with children wearing these masks, first of all, they're improperly wearing them. We know they're not wearing them correctly. And even if they were wearing them correctly, which, by the way, there is no approved mask for children with that sufficient respiration. They have improper ventilation, and there are other negative um, consequences. Just as you were mentioning, you have speech issues, uh, facial recognition issues, dentition issues, cutaneous issues, and the fact that they're having decreased aeration. These are all consequences that will have long-term impacts. And what are we protecting them at this point? Back in the early summer, CDC data said about 40% of kids had already been exposed to the virus. Add now Omicron, and that number has probably doubled, and not to mention the fact that millions of children have been vaccinated. So what are we protecting them from? There is a high level of immunity, and not to mention these are the lowest risk population when it comes to COVID-19. Yes, there are a handful of children who are susceptible to severe illness, and that is why we recommend vaccinations in them. And if they truly are immune, compromise, then they should they should be in a situation where they are protected. Perhaps they should be wearing masks or those around them should wear masks, but not in the generalized sense. This absolutely makes no sense. On child vaccines, next question, because you and I have also repeatedly talked about vaccines. We are both pro-vaccine, very much so. I repeat that all the time. You and I will probably have a conversation in the coming weeks about whether I should get a booster, because I'll be six months out from having my COVID bout. You were so helpful with that back in, in August. It would be six months out. Is it time for a booster? That's something that I'm going to think about and talk to doctors and, and probably text you. I know that you got a lot of texts from Christine recently with her uh, issue with COVID, and, and she thanks you for that. But when it comes to younger kids, I told an example on the air yesterday about the city of Philadelphia, where if you want to bring your kid to a Philadelphia Flyers game, which you shouldn't because the Flyers are awful, but setting that aside, or a 76ers game in basketball, to go into that arena, you have to either have five and up. Like if you have a six-year-old kid, that kid has to be vaccinated in order to go to a sporting event. And I said the other option was to have a negative test. I actually heard from a listener in Philadelphia, very familiar with this arena, and said that used to be the option. Vax your kid or a negative test. They have now erased the testing option. You have to vaccinate. You're required to vaccinate your kid to bring them to sporting events in the city of Philadelphia. And there's examples like that all over the place. I mean, it seems so far removed from what we heard from a lot of experts, yourself included, saying there's a good case for some kids to get vaccinated. It is not nearly as strong as the case for adults. It should be a family to family decision based on the kid, based on you know a doctor recommendation. This should absolutely not be required for children. And yet here we are, doctor. I mean, what do you make of a policy like that? Six year old kid can't go to the basketball game unless she's vaccinated. No other option. Guy, it goes even further than that. Children can't go into a restaurant in New York City without proof of vaccination. It is completely asinine, and it is not based on science. It is based on government officials who are trying to make good optics. But they're... it, uh, I can't wrap my head around this because my children love to go into the city. My children love to do all these other things, and I refuse to cater to this. And whether or not they're vaccinated doesn't even matter. I'm not showing proof of vaccination to go into a restaurant. I'm not wearing a mask 
to walk past the table just to take off that mask. It makes no sense. And yes, the decision to vaccinate a child should be that between the parent, the child, and their pediatrician. There is no data to suggest that vaccination in children is more protective than the natural immunity 70 to 80 percent of those children already have. Vaccination efforts in children should be targeted to those that are higher risk or have high-risk individuals living in the home. But even that argument went out the door with Omicron because while the initial argument said, you know what, we're going to need to vaccinate the kids to lessen transmission to really get this pandemic under control. As soon as Omicron hit and the ability to prevent infection and transmission dropped to below 30 percent, that argument went out the door. The reason to vaccinate people at this point now is to prevent severe illness in them. And when you have healthy young children that are the lowest risk population that have nearly 100 percent survival from this virus, there is not an argument to vaccinate them unless that is a personal choice. And in no way, shape or form should it be mandated by schools, by states, by restaurants, by anyone. It makes no sense. Dr. Sapphire, have you followed the situation now developing where the state of Florida is criticizing the federal government on antibody treatments, monoclonal antibody treatments, which I believe the feds have cut off because they're saying they're not effective against Omicron. Florida's saying these can be life-saving treatments. You haven't shown us clinical data that it's not effective against Omicron. I know that there are still some Delta cases out there where this type of treatment could be effective. I just see arguments on both sides with Florida saying this is an overreaction from the feds. Let us make some of these decisions. Defenders of the Biden administration saying this is not an effective therapeutic anymore. So sending a very expensive treatment to inject into someone where it's not going to help, that doesn't make sense. What do you make of this flap and who's right here? The back and forth between the White House and Governor DeSantis is the most um, appalling politicization of science that we have seen. One of them, I should say, during this pandemic. Uh, Governor DeSantis was a leader in what he did about six months ago, and he put forth these antibody mobile units to get this treatment that was doing an amazing job at keeping people out of the hospital when instituted early. He was making sure that they had access to this life-saving treatment uh, about Four to five months later, after months of criticism for this, uh, the White House actually said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to start mobilizing antibodies and other treatments. It's like, well, welcome to the party. Uh, Yeah, Governor DeSantis has been doing that. Unfortunately, the federal government has done a remarkable job at monopolizing the treatments, and they have done everything to control it, even the vaccines. Primary care doctors didn't have access to vaccinate their own patients, but yet they gave vaccines to pharmacies. And when you're talking about now the antibodies, the two, the Merck and the uh, Regeneron, I'm sorry, the Eli Lilly and the um, Regeneron antibodies, What they're saying is they're not effective against Omicron. Well, that's based on laboratory data. That's not real-time data. And unfortunately, in the real world, we need real-time data. We need evidence-based medicine, and we need to see that it doesn't work. And as you pointed out, there is some delta going on out there. So to pull back that EUA in such a dramatic way, it just plays more to the politicization of it. Um, at this point, yes, there are other treatments but that need to be instituted outpatient, Paxlovid, Fluvoxamine, um, Olnupiravir, but antibodies are still effective against Delta, and while the laboratory data shows that they're less effective against Omicron, it certainly doesn't mean they have zero effectiveness. The point is they're expensive, and the federal government is doing everything that they can to monopolize on it, and 
And another thing, they are concerned that people are depending on antibody treatments instead of getting vaccinated. And as we know, they have a black and white blind push for vaccinations where they are neglecting. They're completely neglecting treatments. Yep, it's the zero-sum game that I think has been foolish for a long time now. Dr. Nicole Sapphire, we've got to leave it there for today. Board-certified medical doctor, senior Fox News medical contributor, author, and birthday girl. The big 4-0 today. Happy birthday, doctor. Uh, Let's uh, celebrate with a drink at some point, I hope. You know we will. Thanks so much for having me. (laughs) Dr. Sapphire on The Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. It's The Guy Benson Show. We are back. Martha McCallum will join us coming up in the next hour in studio. Looking forward to that. Look, at the risk of elevating this guy, who's just so clownish, I want to play yet another thing said by Jimmy Acosta over at CNN. The guy is so thirsty. He is so thirsty for approbation from the resistance crowd. He misses Donald Trump so much back when he could preen and posture at the press conferences and play the victim and get the book deal and all the things that he did, basically the opposite of how Peter Ducey handled the dust-up this week with Biden. And now he's got this weekend show, Acosta does, over at CNN. He was saying, I still have the marks on my back from the lashings I took from Trump or whatever. Like, get over yourself. You're a millionaire CNN host. Come on. But he was on CNN's air talking about the battle over masking and parents' rights in schools. And he asked this question, which is just demented, cut 19. I seem to remember Glenn Youngkin campaigning in a fleece vest in Virginia. He was running as a different kind of Republican. I was told there was going to be a vest, uh, not a Soviet-style police state across the Potomac from Washington. What the hell are you talking about, Jim? Like, what are you smoking? Seriously. It's probably not even legal in D.C., whatever you're smoking. Glenn Youngkin campaigned, yes, as a different type of Republican who was going to do exactly what he's done on school masking. He campaigned on it. He was attacked by it, by your side, Jim, the Democrats. You're a Democratic operative. We all know that. And he won. And what did he say? Soviet-style police state? What? The debate right now is about whether parents can make a decision for their children on masking with the science very much being on the side of the people who decide not to move forward with masking, it's still an option where parents would be empowered. That's kind of the opposite of a Soviet-style police state where individuals and families are empowered and not the state. That's totally backwards. Also, if you go out to dinner, for example, in D.C., you have to show your papers. In Virginia, you do not. I don't think Jiminy thought through the Soviet-style police state line. He just figured that a bunch of dum-dums would eat it up and lap it up. It would be a way for him to go viral and stick it to the Republicans. But he just once again revealed himself to be an ignoramus and basically a performing seal over there. It's embarrassing. It's really embarrassing. Maybe I should call a moratorium on Jim Acosta clips on this show because we're just giving him what he wants attention it's pathetic all right i'm done moving on martha mccallum coming up final hour of the guy benson show when we return
It's five o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage, has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now here's your host, Guy Benson. It's the happy hour on this Wednesday. It's the Guy Benson Show. Glad to have you here every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time and around the clock on demand for free via the podcast. GuyBensonShow.com is the website there. GuyBensonShow.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And this hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. So good. So delicious. Check it out if you haven't already. They're expanding and a big announcement coming soon on that front. TheLongDrink.com. Always drink responsibly, 21 plus only, thelongdrink.com. With me in studio is a fan of the long drink. I am. Among other things, Martha McCallum, executive editor and anchor of The Story, 3 p.m. Eastern on Fox News Channel. Also, Fox News Politics co-anchor, author of the book, Unknown Valor, a bestseller, and her podcast at foxnewspodcast.com is The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. Hey, Martha. Hi, Guy. Good to see you. Great to see you. Before we get to the issue that I really want to dig into with you, obviously huge political news today. I was on Outnumbered earlier in the noon hour. The news broke. Justice Breyer retiring. And I think whenever you get that type of alert involving SCOTUS, all the alarm bells start going off. As I said earlier, though, I'm not sure this will necessarily be a giant rumble just because of some of the dynamics at play right now. Quickly, your thoughts on the SCOTUS vacancy that's Well, you know, just, just to give people some insight into how we do our programming, you know, so you've got your whole show ready to go. You've got a bunch of things in the mix, right? And then all of a sudden you look up at the screen or you look on your phone or wherever the news comes and you go, okay. So that's out the yeah, window, the pay, right? The um, exactly. So then we, there we goes the rundown. start um, digging in and studying everything we've ever known about Justice Breyer and thinking about who these nominees might be. It becomes a really interesting. You know, I, I also couldn't help but think, just as sort of a side note on this, is that it's it's probably welcome news on many levels to the Biden administration yep. because it opens up a new story for him, gives him an opportunity to look presidential, uh, to choose someone to stand next to them in the Rose Garden or wherever when that moment comes. And um, no we'll doubt, get a it's, win. no doubt. It's a, yes, it, it, it's a welcome moment for a very beleaguered administration. Whether that will just be a welcome moment or whether that would have legs. I, I think it could be a flash in the pan. Obviously it matters and they'll try to drag it out, I think, to a certain extent to play to their own benefit. But there are so many other huge cross currents that they're dealing with that aren't going away anytime soon on the foreign policy front, on inflation and the economy. His numbers are just awful across the board right now. And one of the other issues plaguing Democrats, he's the leader of the party, is crime. We were going to get to crime yesterday and we just got so caught up in talking about the battle in Virginia over masks and and COVID restrictions. But I don't want to lose sight of this story because I have seen some critics of the Republican Party, some critics of Fox News saying, oh, this is all being overblown. This is fear mongering. This isn't really as big a problem as some people are making it out to be. I think we should always follow the facts and the data. But some of those facts and data are really problematic right now on murders in major cities. And I think the American people aren't crazy when they look around and think, especially in major metropolitan areas, this does not feel as safe as it did not long ago. And there's a problem here. Absolutely. I, I mean, I've had 
people make that argument to me that it's it's not a big deal, that it isn't what it's being made out to be. And I think, you know, I, I'm reminded of a week ago, I saw a story about a 23-year-old man who got his face slashed in the subway. And it was just this tiny little mention in the bottom corner of a page in the newspaper. So when that's when that's no big deal and that becomes sort of, you know, that's just life in the city, um, I, I just am amazed at people's tolerance, right? Through COVID and through this, people have an incredibly increasing tolerance level for stress, crime, COVID restrictions, all of it. And I think that people start to think, well, this is normal, right? This is okay that this craziness is happening. It is not okay. Not okay when someone, a young woman gets pushed onto the tracks in front of a whole group of people in Times Square. Um, not okay when a 19-year-old gets gunned to death in a Burger King on her late night shift. There is, There are double-digit increases in homicide in close to 20 cities across the country. So to to say that this isn't happening, you know what, it's worthless really because people feel it in their bones. They know it. They, they know they're not as safe as they used to be. Right. And um, Like the AOC talking point isn't going to resonate with people. The CNN talking point, no. they were joining in on it. People get it. They, not, they read the paper. They know what's going on. Right. And, it doesn't you know, align with their own understanding of reality. Yeah. And, and I hope it doesn't come crashing down on them in a personal way, because if it does, you know, they're going to change their mind. And think about all of these families for whom that has happened, mm-hmm. right? And think about how they feel when AOC says it's no big deal, right? I mean, I think about this mother in Harlem who called the police because she was a, she was terrified of what her son might do to her and ends up, you know, witnessing the killing of two police officers and ultimately her son as well, in her apartment. Those police officers came to her aid. That's what they do Mm -hmm. all day long in Harlem, right? Um, So this is a very harsh reality for way too many people across this country right now. We mentioned yesterday the breaking news that that second officer had succumbed to his Mm -hmm. wounds and died. Now five NYPD officers shot in the line of duty just this year in 2022 so far. That's, That's an astounding number. And I understand, look, the people of New York voted for a former cop and a tough-on-crime guy to become the mayor because they were already tired of what was happening. The notion that people don't believe it, I think, is belied, even in a deep blue city like this one in New York, Mm -hmm. to elect Eric Adams. You have this soft-on-crime district attorney who's out there sort of repeating this line from the progressives that this is about guns. This isn't about soft-on-crime policies. And I think that's crazy. Because we see where a lot of the bad things are happening, the worst spikes in crime, and they're in these soft-on-crime jurisdictions, L.A., San Francisco, Philadelphia, uh, New York to a certain extent as well. Guns sort of blaming inanimate objects that have always existed, even when crime was extremely low very recently, to say, oh, that's really the problem. That seems like kind of a, a desperate half-baked partisan talking point to try to get into some terrain where they feel politically comfortable versus like an explanation. I'm always struck when I hear, um, when I hear that phrase gun violence, because it's violence, obviously. Mm -hmm. Um, Gun violence is a weird thing. The guns don't just jump up, you know, out of someone's pocket and shoot someone. They're, they're talking they're, they're about fi- gun violence as if it's the cause. As if it's, yes, as, no, it, it, is, as it if is it's this inanimate crime. thing um, that, that is, you know, sort of taking over people and forcing them to do things that they wouldn't otherwise do. Uh, on the other hand, when I listened to um, Eric Adams, you know, his plan for how he's going to 
crackdown on crime. I was heartened to hear that they that they plan to stop cars coming into New York City over the bridges, um, and it, when they think that the car could be might be carrying weapons that they're going to sell to you know fourteen and fifteen year olds in Harlem. That's a good move. That's a smart thing to do. Um, so I hope they follow through with that. But it is it, it, it's a misnomer, and the problem is that people don't. There's no consequences for their actions. They know they're not going to go to jail. And um, there's a, there's so much mental – there are so many mental health issues in this mm-hmm. city. You know, we no longer have the kinds of facilities that we need to institutionalize people who are not safe on the street. You know, I think about the, the sister of the man who pushed this woman onto the tracks. He, she, she's like, my brother should not be out there. She said, I, I, I was terrified. This well, even like the this guy who happened. burned down the Christmas tree here at Fox no, News, he right? he shouldn't be. He, and and then he was, safe. Out, he was out within yeah. hours. Not safe for, yes, not safe for him. Not safe for the rest of the community. Right. Um, this, this, is, this is not something that should be that complicated, honestly, in, in this city. There should be a place where people can live and are required to take the medicine that they need so that other people on the streets are safe and they're safe. We should note that it's not just New York. There was that horrible shooting in Texas as well in just a, a traffic stop. Uh, I guess there's no such thing as a routine traffic stop because you never know as a police officer what's yeah. going to happen. And you, you saw the bullet holes in the police vehicle mm-hmm. from the suspect who got out of the car and gunned down that cop. Mm-hmm. It's just absolutely Horrible. sickening and outrageous. There was a cop shot in D.C. the other night. And this is also a political point. I saw the news breaking late at night in D.C., Cop is shot. Thank goodness it appears that that individual is going to survive. But still, in the line of duty, an officer was was shot at and wounded. And within hours, you had the local chapter of BLM. And I make a point on this show to separate Black Lives Matter, the concept, from Black Lives Matter, the organization, which I find the former to be absolutely correct and the latter to be radical and, and deeply offensive in a lot of ways. Here's an example of that phenomenon. BLM DC put out a statement bemoaning the outpouring of support for the police and saying, oh, we're going to start calling these people heroes. Like while there was a cop in the hospital having been shot, once again in their mind, the problem was the police. If you don't think that that attitude that has been fostered by certain loud voices in our society have nothing to do with the lack of respect for law enforcement and the crime and the violence that we're seeing, I think that's a huge mistake. I think you're missing something here. If, if you're if you're denying that completely. Well, the other thing that that's missed and I there's a cover from The New York Post that shows 21 children under the age of 18 who've been killed in New York City in the past year. And I put that up on the screen all the time. And I want to know what Black Lives Matter feels about these children and the children in Chicago and the little kid who was you know gunned down and caught in the crossfire in the street just the other day and oh, a six-month-old baby Oof. in Atlanta, right? So these are the stories that are much more common than, you know, the God bless her, the beautiful young woman who's killed in California, right? But these are the things that every city should be concerned about. These are the young people who nobody shows their face enough. Nobody talks about their story enough. This is by far the bigger problem that we have in the United States is inner city, inner city violence, inner city shootings, um, and people who, you know, don't get enough recognition when they die, frankly. And Black Lives Matter should be should be up in arms about these people. They should be marching in the streets about these stories rather than being concerned about a, a right. cop being the myopic Absolutely. focus on attacking and demeaning police. And I just we should mention too, um, that, that just broke a, a short time ago that that uh, the president, President Biden's gonna come to New York 
Thursday, February 3rd, and meet with Eric Adams. Um, obviously, this is a way for the president and the White House to demonstrate that the president takes this problem seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, you know, part of, part of this pivot. He says he wants like, to get hey, out of the care. White House and he wants to go and talk to real people. Um, so I assume that that's part of the plan here. And um, it's a welcome visit to New York. We've been talking understandably here, Martha, about violent crime, murders, shootings, etc. There's also this entire other category of crime that's very visible, which is just shoplifting and looting and that sort of thing. And I know some people say you shouldn't use the term looting. And I know Gavin Newsom in California chastised himself for using the term gangs because it was too pejorative. I mean, it gets, it gets pretty wild with the woke stuff. The reality is these smash and grabs, stores where business owners, their entire livelihood is just gone. The trains getting robbed in Los Angeles yeah. on a regular basis. On and on. There's a theater that had to shut down here in New York because it was robbed twice on consecutive nights. They stole all the copper pipes out of the theater. The, the show had to stop. This is sort of commonplace at this stage. I saw a video that went viral, I think, yesterday. A comedian was at a CVS or something and just filmed someone walking right past security, just taking whatever they wanted and walking out the door. I witnessed it happen when I was most recently in Chicago. A guy came in and just robbed a 7-Eleven, shoplifted, just walked out, and no one did anything. They're terrified. And they weren't even sure if they should call the police because nothing's going to happen. That's another level of this, Martha, that it's not necessarily people are frightened for their lives, separate category, but they're frightened for society and saying – what are we doing if we see examples of this every day? And it's, I think, super out of touch to dismiss that stuff as victimless or to say we're not really going to prosecute it, which some of these prosecutors have announced proudly. Yeah, I, I mean, there's a social contract that people have with civilization, right? Mm-hmm. And when that starts to get broken down and and people feel like they can't even call the police, I mean, that that's a classic example. That's the moment when you pick up the phone, the police come, they chase the guy down. Police, they're, they're not even allowed to chase people down anymore, right? I mean, where I live, they steal cars left and right, and the police aren't supposed to pursue them. Because a chase might, you know, might become dangerous. It's unless they have literally harmed a person or shot a person, they don't, they just drive the car away and they hope that they're going to be able to pick it up on, you know, in some other way. So there's a breakdown of civilization. That's a breakdown of civilization. And people is deeply unnerving to people. And it's felt all across the age spectrums. People know it's wrong. They want it fixed. This is not the Wild West. This is 2021 in the United States of America. And, you know, this is a deep, deep problem. We need to arrest people. They need to do time. You are not allowed to walk into a store and clear the shelves and walk out without any without any retribution. Yeah. And I think from a purely political standpoint, this is an issue that unites Republicans law and order, and it actually divides Democrats because you have a wing of the party that doesn't want to come to grips with what's happening. Another wing of the party saying, are you crazy? We're going to get swamped if we don't. They're divided on it. The Republicans, I think, would be nuts not to focus on this issue ahead of the midterms. I think it's one of their maybe top three or four punch list items that could And by could the way, lead. not to call them gangs is to turn your attention away from a huge problem in this country. Yep. So much of this is gang violence and their initiations, all of it, okay? So if you're going to not call them gangs, what, what should happen is they should be prosecuted on, you know, potentially racketeering charges. I mean, there's there's 
large organizations here that could be tapped into in order to crack down on these organizations. Yeah, and they're, they're more. Some of these politicians are more worried about the language that they're using. Yeah, get over then it. Then the problem. Wake up. Yep, absolutely. Martha McCallum. The story, 3 p.m. Eastern, every weekday on Fox News Channel. We always love chatting with you, especially in person, Martha. Great, Great to, to see, see you. you, Guy. Thanks see you for next having time. me. Absolutely. It's the Guy Benson Show. Happy hour. Not the happiest topic. We'll get happier when we come back. Guess who I saw on the street in New York yesterday? I wanted a selfie, didn't ask for one. Kind of regretting it. That's next. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. It's the happy hour. It's the Guy Benson Show. If you're listening on the live broadcast, our bumper music is a heavy clue. Because I teased before the break that I bumped into someone famous on the streets in Midtown Manhattan yesterday. I was looking for dinner. And I looked up from my phone and right in front of me on the sidewalk was 50 Cent. The rapper who was a huge deal, especially when I was younger. And he had a bit of an entourage. And there was this big black SUV, I believe a Cadillac that he was about to get into. We made eye contact. I nodded at him and I had this fleeting thought, should I try to get a selfie? I decided not to do it and about five minutes later, I was sitting by myself at dinner because, I mean, it's COVID times, it's Manhattan. I had a small window of time with Gutfeld and I was thinking, maybe I should have done that. That would have been a good selfie. But you also want to leave people alone. I don't know. I've done this exact same thing before. I saw Benedict Cumberbatch, the actor, a couple years ago. I was a big fan of Sherlock, that whole series he did, I think, for BBC. I came so close to asking for a selfie, then decided to play it cool and not do it, and then I've regretted it ever since. Maybe I should just change my approach on this. I know producer Christine would just be shameless. Oh, my God, 50 Cent. Take a photo. I also don't need a photo with him because I already have plenty of photos with an even more famous rapper, C. Diddy, who is Cookie's alter ego. We haven't heard from C. Diddy in a while, actually, here on the show. That might be for the best, as a matter of fact. Come to think of it. So anyway, if you're listening, Fiddy, I'm sure you are. Good to see you. The Guy Benson Show resumes after this break. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. It's the happy hour. It's the Guy Benson Show. Glad to have you here. Earlier in the program, Nikki Haley, former governor of South Carolina, former U.S. ambassador to the United Nations. She dropped by to talk about the crisis in Ukraine. Her thoughts on the Biden administration's handling of this whole issue thus far and what the U.S. should be doing. Here's part of my conversation with Nikki Haley. We're the United States of America, and there are probably, you know, certain levers of of leverage that we can use to maybe turn the screws a little bit on the German government, make them make a choice, make them choose between the West and Putin. I mean, there's a, obviously a balancing act. You don't want to play total hardball with your own allies when you've got this huge threat from Russia. But it seems like maybe there could be more pressure brought to bear on some of the stragglers. 
No, you absolutely absolutely play hardball with your allies. You know, when you when you have fights in the family, you keep it behind closed doors, but you have fights in the family. And look, there was not unity when it came to us getting out of the Iran deal. There wasn't unity mm-hmm. when I had to fight to get um, the harshest sanctions on North Korea, you know, in history. There wasn't unity when we were going and taking on China. We created that unity. And we did it by, there were many times where I closed the door and talked to my European allies and said, this is what has to be done. This is why we have to do it. And when we walk out that door, there needs to be a united front. That is what you do. That is the whole reason we fought back on Nord Stream 2. And we did it knowing that this was going to happen. This is when Biden should go into the room and say, well, I mean, the the hard part is Biden sold us out on Nord Stream 2. Trump had made sure we didn't allow that to happen. Biden gave it a free pass. So first, he has to admit the mistake that that was wrong. Secondly, he's got to get Germany to look out for the region and not just themselves. This is what leadership is. It's getting a disunified group together for the greater good. It can be done. We've done it multiple times before, but it takes energy, it takes hard work, and it takes a 100% commitment. These countries would much rather follow the United States than Russia or China any day of the week. But when they don't see the U.S. lead, they all cower and go into their separate groups. And that's what's happening right now. You know, Madam Ambassador, as you're making those points, I can't help but think back since we're talking about this pipeline. Just, what, two weeks ago at this point, the administration sent officials up to Capitol Hill to whip Democrats against a sanctions bill from Senator Cruz to sanction Putin and this pipeline. And I guess the understanding was, look, we don't want to rankle the Germans too much. Uh, We don't want to necessarily step on our diplomatic efforts prematurely. We might get to that eventually. But if you want to send a signal about the the seriousness of purpose of the United States government across party lines, I wonder if that would have been a better strategic decision decision rather to let the Senate move forward on a bipartisan basis because they had majority support. Democrats hilariously filibustered it actually while they were in the middle of trying to kill the filibuster and call it racist. They briefly uh, came back into the non-racist camp and used it to kill it which is what the Biden team wanted them to do. It seems like that, especially now looking back, looks like even more of a mistake. It absolutely was a mistake. And, you know, you should be asking every Democrat, look at what situation you put us in, because don't complain about Ukraine without realizing that you missed a total opportunity to sanction that Nord Stream 2, which would have really flat footed Putin. I mean, these are all the things that we've got to to get it together. There's so much, Guy, when you look at the situation. I mean, there's no surprise that you've got 30 planes flying over Taiwan right now. There's no surprise that you're seeing the Ayatollahs start to look for areas where they can have suicide bombers and they're starting to have their terrorist attacks. There's no surprise that North Korea is starting to test missiles again. They all sense weakness. And we've got to get it together. I mean, there's a serious problem when Biden wants to say COVID's the number one priority. Fine. Then why is it that when we pick up an N95 mask, it's made in China? Why is it that these tests that he's passing out to everyone, they're made in China? Why is it that the Americans still rely on over 10 percent of our energy from Russia? We've got to wake up and understand 
you have to wrangle some feathers. I sat across from the German ambassador and read him the riot act and told him in front of other Europeans, tell me why this is good for our alliance. And he couldn't answer the question. We have to start doing the things that are difficult to do for the good of our country and for the good of the world. It's just not happening. It's not because there aren't solutions. It's because people are getting lazy. And the laziness is going to destroy America if we don't start doing something about it. Well, and really hurt the West and will allow powers, emerging powers, that are diametrically, diametrically opposed to our values to gain strength and influence around the world, which is not good news. And since you mentioned Taiwan, I guess we can maybe leave it here. We don't want to get too far out into the future or catastrophize too much. But if it feels like Putin is able to get away with something again in Ukraine, because let's remember, he's already done it, right? This would be round two in Ukraine, should it play out this way. You know that Beijing is watching the world reaction extremely closely. And if they sense like they can get away with something similar, I mean, Taiwan will fall, right? I mean, there there are consequences beyond the immediate circumstance when it comes to other tyrants and other bully regimes elsewhere making decisions and calculating what they might be able to get away with. It's really important that everybody look at the end of the Olympics. It's the reason that we didn't want and and the reason I pushed so hard for a boycott of the Beijing Olympics is because if they get a pass and we get past these Olympics and we still look weak, they're going to do whatever they want because they can. And that's the dangerous part of the next three years is honestly, for the good of our country, if, if, if Biden loved our country, he would step down and take Kamala with him because the foreign policy situation is beyond dangerous at this point. And, you know, it, it, when you don't have a strong America, you don't have a safe world. And that's what's getting ready to happen. And and, you know, my only hope and prayer is that they get it together and realize this isn't about America. This isn't about, you know, NATO. This is about all of us. This is about safety. This Wait, is did, about strength. And this is about freedom winning. Ambassador and, Haley, did, did you just call on the president and vice president to resign? I mean, look at the situation. We are in a dangerous situation. He destroyed Afghanistan. He's put us in the situation with Russia. He has no plan for Taiwan. And you're sending our our athletes over to Beijing for the Olympics. And you've said nothing about how you're going to protect them when they're over there. They've literally been threatened and told if they say anything against the government, they will be punished. Where is the protection for Americans? I mean, literally, he has failed on every level. And then you look domestically. You look at the fact that crime is hitting our streets. You look at the fact that our kids, we've got an entire COVID generation that we're going to be lucky if they graduate from high school at this point, if we keep these schools closed and keep taking on these teachers unions, you've got a border where you allowed 200,000 illegal immigrants to cross last month alone. Yep. All of the, this has been a catastrophe on every level. That's not me speaking politically. That full exchange with Ambassador Nikki Haley on The Guy Benson Show, available if you missed any of it, for free in its entirety on the podcast, which is also no charge on demand every day. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch, very foul-mouthed Guy Benson last night on Gutfeld, a little sketch that I was involved in 
seem to have gone over pretty well. Do I need my mouth washed out with soap? We'll discuss it straight ahead. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. He's like Peter Pan. He doesn't age and will never marry a woman. <laughs> Host of the Guy Benson Show and Fox News contributor, Guy Benson. Homestretch on the Guy Benson Show, Wednesday edition, heading back to D.C. tonight after a few days in New York. And part of the reason I was here was for my appearance on Gutfeld. And because of COVID right now, they don't have the studio audience. So a bit of a different vibe in the studio. Still a lot of fun. I really enjoy doing that show almost as much as I enjoy doing this show. Our website, of course, GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast always free. I'll just remind you of that. But last night, we did the panel conversation. Greg always does an opening monologue at the top of the show. And he'll insert little jokes and sometimes little skits. And I got an email, I want to say late morning yesterday, saying, hey, Greg has a general idea for a skit. Would you be willing to participate in it? And we were pretty chock-a-block yesterday in terms of commitments and other work that I had to do, but I felt like you don't want to say no to a Gutfeld skit. So we made it work, which was a lot of fun. And the premise was that Greg had come up with, what if we had... Guy Benson, yours truly, sort of falling under the spell of President Biden's example of leadership and personal comportment. What if he goes around, this is how it's pitched to me, greeting people in the building here at Fox at the headquarters and calling them stupid SOBs to their faces as sort of following in the footsteps of President Biden with the whole situation Peter Ducey. And I think he thought, Greg thought it'd be funny because my reputation is a little bit more, I don't know, buttoned up. And I was wearing, you know, a collared shirt with a sweater over it and my Sperry top siders. And I'm just sort of uh, kind of waspy, low key person going around cursing at people as a way to make fun of Biden. So I decided, perhaps against my better judgment, to roll with it and do it. And the way it came together was we decided that I was going to go around sort of the green room area at the five and insult the hosts of the five, except for Greg. And so some of this is visual, so the audio won't quite translate, but some of it will also make sense. In order, it's Dana Perino, Geraldo Rivera, Jesse Waters, And then at the very end, Judge Janine, this is what it sounded like, cut 24. But also the president sets the tone, and sadly, it's contagious. Hey, Queen, I just want to let you know that on Instagram, all your photos of Percy are so cute. Thank you. Yeah, give that little stupid son of a a scratch for me, okay? (laughs) (laughs) Stupid son of a What are you doing, guys? Hey, Jesse, congratulations on the new show, the ratings. Thank you. Are you surprised they gave it to me? That's a stupid question. Of course I'm surprised. You're a brain-dead son of a... (laughs) It's not personal, pal. Hey, Judge. You know what? Let's not. Let's not. Yeah, I love the the chuckles from Kat in the background there. At the end, I decided not to say it to Judge Janine. 
because if we're honest, I'm a little terrified of Judge Jeanine. So I'm not going to use that word even in a skit with her. So I think it went pretty well. If you would like to see how it looked, we posted it on Twitter at Guy P. Benson. We amplified it on the show account at Guy Benson Show. It's also in my Instagram stories right now. You can go through and you can watch for yourself. And of course, the clip at the very beginning of this segment was how I was introduced by Greg. Pretty good one. He usually has good ones for me. I have to give him that. And the Peter Pan line uh, was amusing and well played, Greg. And the rest of the show was a lot of fun as well. We had a good dynamic, even absent the studio audience, which usually adds some energy. Christine, you were a fan of this. I was nervous because if you try to do comedy and you put yourself out there and you're the star of a sketch in front of however many people are watching, sometimes upwards of two million on that show, and it kind of flops, that's not a great feeling. I was looking to avoid that, but the reception was pretty good. The feedback I got was solid. I think you nailed that. Honestly, I know you said you guys had a little bit of a time constraint. You wanted to keep it to a minute. I could have watched you walk around all of Fox just going around saying, hey, USOB. <laughs> it was very funny. Um, your comedic timing is, is very impressive. The judge one got me. I love that you just kind of shied away from her saying, nope, no, 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 no. Yeah, let's, let's not. I also <laughs> liked that I didn't call Dana that, but I called Dana's puppy that because technically the puppy is a son of a bee, literally. Mm-hmm. But Dana, Dana gasped that I would say such a thing about sweet Percy. I did a quick blow by with Geraldo. He was just sort of loitering and I just, you know, pat him on the shoulder, chuckling to myself and called him that. And then what you couldn't see, certainly, of course, because it's radio, was Jesse Waters coming up to me. I was sitting in his chair on the five set in that middle chair. I was just hanging out there. He's like, what are you doing? So we got to plug his new show, Jesse Waters Primetime, massive ratings in its debut the other night. And that was a fun little back and forth. And then I joked later on the show that because of my insults of all the hosts, that might be the closest I ever get to being on the five. So I had to take my shot while I had it. I loved it. I loved it. When seeing you on the set of the five was just very funny. Very funny. Well done, guy. Well done. Thank you. I needed that affirmation. Because it's it's a little bit out of my comfort zone. I think I have a pretty good sense of humor, but... And also, you wouldn't have done it had you not thought you could pull it off, and you would have kept going until it was 100%. Yeah, I knew that the execution was going to matter, but we also didn't have a lot of time, right? There was no script. I basically came up with the skit, right? Greg had the concept for the gag. Then my job was to execute it, and there was an awesome member of his team who came down who helped, but it was literally, I had a clip-on microphone... And there was an iPhone. That was all shot on an iPhone. There wasn't oh. a whole camera crew. There wasn't lights. It was, you know, no makeup or anything. It was just, we have 10 minutes. Let's go do this. And then we're going to put it on television in front of millions of people. That's how it went down. So there there wasn't, uh, like, the highest of production values. But I think we carried it off okay. And my excuse, by the way, that I made on the panel for having cursed so much because I, I actually had promised 
Back in December, I was on Gutfeld. We did a segment built around cursing. I guess there was some study. We talked about it here that people were cursing more during the pandemic. So everyone was swearing up a storm and they were bleeping everything on the show. And I declined to curse, but I said, I'll do it next time. So I cursed a lot in this sketch. And my joke was it was a hot mic. I just, you know, I forgot I had the microphone. I forgot there was a camera there every time for all four of them. So we, we had some fun at the president's expense. And I think he probably deserved it. I think you guys nailed it. Wait a second. You guys were doing that skit via iPhone. I have this crazy idea. Oh, no. What if we start doing some skits on the iPhone and then put it on social media? Oh, Let's um. I got I to brainstorm that. Oh, oh, I can perform C. Diddy. I, I could do C. Diddy stuff just on the iPhone and we could blast it out. So to quote myself from the sketch last night, you know what? Let's not. Let's not. <laughs> Back here tomorrow from D.C., the Guy Benson Show Thursday edition upcoming. Thank you for listening. Have a great night. We will talk to you then. And join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table the Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.